6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3. It's interesting to me that in these eschatological epistles, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, so much of the text is devoted to simple, practical living. And eschatology should enhance that, not distract that. It really does. And people who understand prophecy have, I believe, a more dynamic day-to-day reality to an expectation of the Lord coming than otherwise. But it also can be a hobby horse that keeps you from being constructive. Verse 13, But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. As Moody put it so well, I get weary in the work, but not weary of the work. So yes, we may get tired, but we go forward because we're committed to the work. You betcha. Okay, that's two of the three things. Let's get to the third session of this closing chapter. Be doers, not just hearers of the word. Okay. One of the strengths, apparently, of the Thessalonian church was its attitude toward the word of God. They heard and received the word, believed it, and shared it with others. And they often get abused a little bit because we often contrast them in their native enthusiasm by pointing to the Bereans, in that the Bereans were more noble in that they received the word with all openness of mind, but they searched the scriptures daily to prove which those things be so. In other words, the Bereans were from Missouri, so to speak. They had had to be shown. They would test things, make sure they're correct. And that was the proper thing to do. But we shouldn't, in, the, in, in emphasizing that, overlook the fact that the Thessalonian church had an open and aggressive, receptive posture with respect to the Word of God and sharing it with others. But there is a problem here because some of the believers were becoming hardened to the Word. That is, they heard it but did not obey it. And we're all guilty of that, by the way. We get certain passages that we know so well, we've got to memorize, they sometimes lose their edge in impacting our behavior. The evidence of their unbelief and disobedience was seen in the way they lived, and their lives were a disgrace to the church, some of them. We must be hearers and doers of the word. That's one thing that the Mahatma Gandhi, uh, so memorial, they asked him once, what, he, what did this, uh, some publicist ask him uh, what he felt was the biggest obstacle to Christianity in India? And he said, Christians. Painfully poignant criticism. The behavior of criticisms turns a lot of people off. Watching some of the foolishness that's on Christian television is a turnoff to the the open, uh, someone may be a seeker, an open believer, and he sees some of the the foolishness, and it's a turnoff. It's tragic, but it's, it's, it's true. It's interesting. My wife and I just published a book, The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory. And it's interesting how that book has had incredible fruit. It's caused many people to recognize their accountability before the Lord. And it's really a call to accountability. And it's had, apparently, from all the mail we're getting, incredibly positive effects. But 
It also has caused some very surprising reactions in certain quarters. People who were abhorrent to the idea of being held accountable. The presumption that once you're saved, everybody in heaven is going to be equal. These are not biblical concepts. And yet they're widely believed uh, implicitly. And, uh, it's, and many people are quite disturbed to think that behavior matters. You didn't contribute to your salvation. Jesus did the whole thing on a cross. So that's called justification. But that was set the stage for being a fruit bearer, to bear fruit from that. And that fruit's going to be evaluated. Once you're saved, great. Behavior matters. It'll determine your inheritance, your rewards, and many other things. It's amazing how controversial that kind of a concept can be in some quarters. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him, ooh, that he may be ashamed. They're not asking him to be treated as an unbeliever. Not They don't go that far. Don't misunderstand him here. But they, are, they do feel he should be censured and corrected. And count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. The aim is not exclusion, but reformation. Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always, by all means. The Lord be with you all. With you all. So you know he's a southerner, see. Because he always said grace and peace to you all. We know he's not a Texan because he's learning whatever state he finds himself there and to be content. But you've heard all that before. Okay. The salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write. See, in other words, he's not writing the epistle. He has an amanuensis doing that. Sylvanus is doing that for him. But here at this point, he picks up the pen with his own hand, and he assigns it to himself so they'll know that this is not a forgery, like the previous one is. But he says it has the token. Do you know what the secret token of Paul is? This comes up in some of our other epistle studies. It may surprise you to know what that token is. He takes the pen from Minuensis, adds the closing words in his own hand. He does that in Romans 16, 22, 1 Corinthians 16, 21, and Colossians 4, 18 as other examples. See, the use of scribes are very common. Roman businessmen were great letter writers. They had professionals do that for them. Well, they dictated. In fact, they had invented three different shorthand systems are in, in recorded. John Muir's book, How Firm a Foundation, details some of those. But his final sentence, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Do you know how many writers in the New Testament use that as a, a closing salutation? Only one. They don't use the word grace. Paul's the one that uses the word grace. Peter uses it in the text once or twice. But it's become the trademark of uh, Paul's writing. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And that becomes, that's one of the reasons when you get to the book of Hebrews, and it closes that way. It seems to confirm something that the, that the book evidences anyway. But that's a whole other study, at least. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So this was a response to a forgery. Signing may not have been an earlier practice, but he's been cured. He now signs it that way. Very large letters are mentioned, especially in Galatians. And it's some, that's why some people think that may have been associated with imperfect eyesight. Now, in your Bible, it probably says it was written from Athens. Many Bibles have that annotation that appears on some manuscripts. But it's an erroneous scribal edition from a misunderstanding of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. This letter was also, as was the first, it was written from Corinth. 
right next door to it. But anyway, no big deal. So one of the things I'd like to ask, you think about it, what have you learned from these epistles? We've learned a lot of clarity on some eschatological issues, and we'll review them in here in just a few minutes. The blessed hope comes out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The ecclesiology over eschatology. One of the things we've learned here that your ecclesiology derives from your eschatology. The eminence of his return for, for his own, that, that Jesus is coming back. There's no, there's no intervening episode that has to precede the rapture. It could happen while we're speaking right now. Okay, so let's we'll just take the little time we have left here for a quick summary of what we want. The first epistle of Thessalonians, which focused on our blessed hope, the first three chapters of First Thessalonians, we look back on our exemplary conversion, the exemplary evangelism and aftercare. Our first conversion, mentioning others, missionary work, and aftercare. And then the last couple of chapters in the first epistle was looking ahead to two things. The blessed hope, that's chapter 4, and that's where we have the famous rapture passages. And also uh, the fifth chapter, which deals with what comes after that, namely the day of the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians, we have a trilogy there that deserves our refreshment here. It says, remember, without ceasing, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, that's three graces that would be featured later in the Corinthian letter. The work of faith, the patience of hope, and the labor of love. And uh, so, this is a trilogy. The work of faith, is that's past tense. The labor of love, that's present tense. And the patience, that's looking ahead, that's the future. So we have a paradigm here. Faith rests on the past. Love works in the present. And hope looks to the future. Each looks outward. Faith looks back to the crucified Savior. Love looks up to a crowned Savior. And hope looks on to a coming Savior. So that captures the flavor of what Paul is trying to get across here, I think. And the church, of course, is distinguished by these three. Faith, hope, and love. We also, I think, as we went through these epistles highlighted some vocabulary we think is very helpful. That salvation is a verb with three tenses. The past tense is our separation from the penalty of sin that was done on the cross 2,000 years ago. 100% done by Jesus Christ. We can't add to it. He did it all. And we call that justification. The present tense is separation from the power of sin. And the future tense is separation from the very presence of sin. Now, the separation of the penalty of sin we call justification. Separation of the power of sin we call sanctification. A believer is, an unbeliever is in bondage to sin. Can't help it. He is. You and I, if we're believers, have the ability to separate ourselves from the power of sin through the Holy Spirit, which, which indwells in us. And that's what the Epistle of Romans really hammers home. The future tense, of course, as we aspire to when we get our resurrection bodies, to be separated from the very presence of sin. We call that glorification. These three terms, past, present, and future, we prefer to use rather than the word salvation, which can be an all-inclusive but a fuzzy, less precise way of expressing an idea. Okay, so we've been through all of these. The looking ahead part of the epistle brought us to the, probably the core of the whole study, which is the rapture of the church. We, if we take all the different passages of the Lord's return, we see a whole group of them that deal with the second coming, we see another group that are just opposite of them that speak of the rapture. And as we look through all of these and compare them, we discover it, they really profile two different events. 
One involves the translation of believers. The other one, there's no translation involved. One, the translated saints go to heaven. In the other case, the translated saints return to the earth from heaven. Ooh, they're different, aren't they? One is the earth is not judged. The other one, the earth is judged. One is imminent, meaning it can happen at any moment. It's the next expectation. And the second coming follows after a whole series of events. The 70th week of Daniel, the abomination of desolation, the great tribulation, da 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 A whole bunch of events that, that happen before the second coming occurs. The rapture, they say, is not in the Old Testament. We have shown you three places that we think it is, but they're just illusions. The second coming, of course, is predicted clearly in the Old Testament. The rapture is believers only. The second coming affects all men upon the earth. The rapture occurs before the day of wrath. The second coming concludes the day of wrath. Big difference here. And so, Rapture has no reference to Satan. The second coming, of course, Satan is bound for a thousand years. Rapture comes, he comes for his own. Second coming, he comes with his own. In the rapture, he comes in the air. And the second coming, he comes to the earth. In the rapture, he claims his bride. And the second coming, he comes with his bride. In the rapture, only his own see him. And the second coming, every eye shall see him. Very different. The rapture, the great tribulation begins, not immediately, but following that. And second coming, the millennium begins. Rapture involves the churches, church believers only. The second coming, Old Testament saints are raised at the second coming, we understand. The key verses that uh, you want to practically memorize for yourself where Paul says, Brethren, I would not have you be ignorant concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that which we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we, who are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with him in the clouds, and so shall we meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wow. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. No quick. And the word caught up there is harpazo in the Greek, to be forcibly snatched out. But if you have any doubts about that, I encourage you to go back and review your notes on chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians. The last chapter of 1 Thessalonians also has some tremendous eschatological insights focusing on the day of the Lord. The rapture ends the day of the church and begins the day of the Lord. It's a period of time which begins with a great, with, essentially with the Great Tribulation and goes through the millennial reign of Christ here upon the earth. It denotes the day when God intervenes in history to deal with wicked men directly and dramatically in fearful judgment and to establish his kingdom. Sorrow for the unsaved, joy for the saved. The day of wrath, all through the scriptures, especially Joel 2, Amos 5, and so on. Uh, it's called by Jeremiah the time of Jacob's trouble. The focus is, of course, on the, uh, the Israelis. All inhabitants of the land will tremble, uh, Jesus tells us in Matthew 24. And one church group called the Church of Philadelphia is promised they will be kept from the hour of the day of the Lord. Now, even though, not just protected through it, but kept from that time period, if you will. Big difference. And so the result of uncertainty for the unprepared, the days of Noah and so forth, those parallels that we talked about. Okay, so in, in, now we get to the second epistle of the Thessalonians. We had the present distress he talked about in chapter 1, and then we get to the order of events, and that's probably the kernel 
of the second epistle is chapter 2. He talks, talks about that it was a, it's motivated by a forgery and all that. We talked about that. But the order of events is the critical part in chapter 2. And uh, the various sequence of events are structured there. And we'll go to the little diagram that should help. And then, the, of course, it finishes with the coming challenge and to be practical in your walk. Work for the night is coming, if you will. There is a personage in chapter 2 that's critical to understand and subject of lots of misunderstandings. It speaks of the restrainer. Who is the restrainer? If you study your Bible, only God has ever restrained sin. Satan certainly did, did not. So John 6.3, the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for he is also flesh. It was God's hedge that restrained Satan in Job 1 and 2. It's always God that is restraining sin. So it's the Holy Spirit who restrains. Now it's distinctive with the church is that he indwells us. That was not true in the Old Testament. It will, won't be characteristic after the rapture. Now the Holy Spirit is still around after the rapture. But he's not indwelling us. Because there are people saved after the rapture and they're saved by the Holy Spirit. But not in the indwelling sense that we have the benefit of. It's even Isaiah 59. The Spirit of the Lord shall restrain him and so forth. So here's the little diagram that should really help. The issue is, when is the day of the Lord? The Thessalonians were upset because they thought the day of the Lord had started. And they were upset because they were taught that they'd be out of there before then. What's going on? Were they mistaught? Or had they missed something here? And so Paul writes this letter and said, that day shall not come, that is the day of the Lord, except there first come a falling away. That's in verse 3 of chapter 2. So the apostasy comes first. And then when you get to verse 7, he who now restrains will restrain until he be taken out of the way. So apostasy first, then the restrainer is removed. And we infer from all of that by understanding it, that's concomitant with the rapture. The restrainer is removed in his containers, so to speak. That's verse 7. Then you get to verse 8. And then shall that wicked one be revealed. Now that's a... Verse 8, following verse 7, is a very fundamental insight in the Scripture. That means the Antichrist will not be revealed until after the rapture of the church. That should relieve us of any... That, 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 by the way, that also explains why nowhere in the Bible does it tell us to watch for the Antichrist. Not at all. Because we're not going to be here. We'll be in the mezzanine. It's after the rapture, then shall that wicked one be revealed. And that's one of the reasons I suspect, this is just a personal suspicion on my part, I believe the reason the rapture isn't clearly scheduled is to catch Satan by surprise. Because when the rapture takes place, that starts a period. He knows he has a small window of time to do whatever he's going to do. And he has to have his man ready to jump in and try to pull off what he's going to try to pull off after the rapture, and then shall the wicked one be revealed. And so this little diagram, I think, should be very helpful if you just take the time to go through the chapter carefully and come to your own conclusions on that. Now, we study Revelation chapter 2 and 3. We, of course, have the seven letters to seven churches. What is rather interesting, and many people recognize that there are several levels of understanding here, a local level and a a personal level, and a ch admonition to churches kind of level. Those are three straightforward things. But the fourth level is prophetic. And we discover that each of these letters, as we understand the letter, its title, 
uh, that Jesus uses, the name of the church. There are about seven characteristics in each letter that is aimed at a specific point. And Ephesus is the apostolic church. Smyrna seems to be the persecuted church. Pergamos is the, the married church. What Satan couldn't accomplish by persecuting the church, he accomplished by having it marry the world. And that's Pergamos, the perverted marriage, if you will. And uh, Thyatira is the medieval church, the dark ages and all that came with it. And Sardis was the denominational church that emerges out of that. Uh, that had a name only, but is dead today. Philadelphia is the missionary church. And Laodicea is the apostate church, where the people rule rather than Jesus rules. And uh, we notice, strangely, that the first three of these letters, as we study them very carefully, have the promises to the overcomer postscripted outside the body of the letter for some reason. The last four have that promise to the overcomer that's included in every one of them is in the body of the letter. So that catches our attention. We realize the last four in some way must be distinctive. We also notice the last four include explicit references to the second coming of Christ. So we begin to realize that while on the one hand they are in a historical time order, the last four seem to be contemporaneous to the end. And we notice that the first of those four is, has an explicit promise that if they don't repent, they will be cast into the Great Tribulation, which means if they do repent, they won't be. And so this idea that the church is going to go through the Tribulation is a major eschatological debate. But I think we feel, for a number of obvious reasons, that the church uh, is not intended to go through the Great Tribulation. And that's what uh, Paul emphasizes in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, is that the, we are not called to wrath. That is, the church isn't. And that is the wrath, the tribulation includes the wrath of God. Now, the Philadelphia church, in contrast, has an explicit promise that it will not see the, it will remove from the hour of the great tribulation. So it is a promise in verse 10 that it'll be out of there. Now, that leaves a couple of them rather problematic. Uh, we believe we are in the age of the Laodicean church, and that seems uh, as we deal with that and publish messages that affect, we get the anticipated reaction from those groups. I was reminded by a friend, uh, one of our board members said, if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, you can tell which one he hit by the one that yells the loudest. And I like that. That makes it pretty clear. Laodicea today. So eschatology, remember that chart we made? Your basic, your basic fork in the road is amillennial, premillennial. The class, the denominational church from Augustine following is amillennial. Unfortunately, that is a way of dismissing all of God's promises in the Old Testament. Now, I won't get into postmillennial here, but we notice if you're premillennial, you can be post-trib, pre-trib, mid-trib, and so forth. The point is, really, most denominational churches are amillennial, and, and they think that the church will go through the tribulation. Those that are fundamentalists are usually uh, on the other, premillennial, pre-tribulation. Now, the point, what you discover if you analyze all this it all depends on how you treat the text. If you're willing to allegorize the text, treat it symbolically, what I'll call softly, then you'll swing on the left side of the chart. You could. If you take the text very seriously, very strictly, very precisely, take it very literally, you drive to the right hand. So if I know your hermeneutics, I can predict where you come out on this chart. Now, there's a thing I call the epistemological cycle. Your hermeneutics determine your eschatology. And that's what that little chart attempts to demonstrate. Okay, that's pretty good. Well, your eschatology will determine your ecclesiology. 
You really won't understand the mystery of the church until you really understand your eschatology. And that's what that little chart from Revelation 2 and 3 begins to crystallize for you. Well, the final thing is your ecclesiology will determine your hermeneutics because that will determine what version of the Bible you would use, whether or not you use a paraphrase or not. Paraphrases may be useful for many things, but you don't study from them because you lose the word play that God is calling, that the Holy Spirit's using. And that's one reason, even though we've always taught King James because we like its majesty and its classic position, its problems are well known, of course. But we're beginning to realize the International Standard Version Bible may be just fresh enough, especially since it takes advantage of Dead Sea Scrolls and other things, that we may be starting to do some of our studies on a modern translation. But in any case, that'll all, our, our ecclesiology will determine our hermeneutics, which in any case, what that really means is all these things should point, of course, to the person of Jesus Christ. And so, rapture is not a doctrine to argue about. It's a doctrine to live. Some believe he's coming after the tribulation, some before and some during. Okay, how does your interpretation, whatever it is, affect your life? Does it do anything for you? If your view has no effect on your life, then you might reconsider what you believe, okay? Okay, so therein is it. So I encourage you to uh, take your notes and work through them and come to your own conclusions on these, you know, polemic issues, but always leaning on the whole counsel of God. No one-verse theology here. And so with all that, let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the joy of the blessed hope as we look to the coming of our King. We pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit and through your word, you would reveal to each of us more clearly precisely what it is you would have of each of us as we go forward and to be more fruitful stewards of the opportunities that lie ahead as we commit ourselves without any reservations whatsoever in your hands. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord, our Savior, our coming King. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 2 Thessalonians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, please visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, when we begin a new series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.